Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Adam Toon, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Exeter. His new book, Mind as Metaphor, is just out from Oxford University Press. Folk psychology on a standard reading is the way we attribute contentful mental states to others in order to explain and predict their behavior. For example, saying that John thinks the plant needs water as an inner mental state that explains why he is looking for the watering can. In his new book, Toon argues that this view is incorrect. We do not have mental representations. Instead, while our concept of mind is of an inner world, this inner world is a fiction. What we are really doing is picking out complex patterns of behavior and projecting this inward. Intentionality, meanwhile, resides in public language, not in the mind. Toon also distinguishes his view from Ryle's and Dennett's and argues that while the ascriptions should not be taken literally, their purpose is serious and our practice of ascribing them is indispensable. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Adam Toon. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hi, thank you for having me. This is this is a great, a fu- very fun book actually to read. Um, you know, well written, but also very intriguing. And you know, I can't say I was completely persuaded by mindless <laughs> metaphor, but um, I'm I'm kind of willing to be persuaded. And I, I think there's a lot of interesting points that you make uh, during the course of the book. Um, Thank you. So before before we get into the details of the book, tell us a bit about yourself. You're um, you're now at Exeter. Um, uh, so how did you get into philosophy and how did you come to write this book? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I suppose um, uh, if I think back to school, I was, I was sort of perhaps one of those kids who was interested in in, in pretty much everything across the humanities and, and sciences. Um, but in the UK, anyway, you're asked to sort of um, specialize, pick what, you know, three or four subjects fairly, fairly young, about 15, 16. So I ended up doing the um, the maths and sciences, and I was I was lucky enough to to get a place at university in Cambridge to do maths and physics, um, and I had a, a a great time. But I think um, you know, as I look back on it, I think I could sort of hear friends in the college bar, you know, having um, sort of big debates about um, uh, politics or history or big ideas, big books, and so on, and st- start to feel it a little bit, a little bit jealous. Um, <laughs> I was missing out on something there as I saw the, this was two years into my degree, so I saw the end of my time looming. Um, um, and I suppose also I, I got a, um, I'm slightly depressed at the, um, certainly not not the attitude of any of my my teachers and lecturers there, but the, the slightly dogmatic 
attitude you sometimes get around the sciences, which can sort of make you feel as if, yeah, you know, everything's kind of been found out and other ways of finding out about the world or thinking about it in the past or in religion or what have you are just sort of obviously hopelessly um, irrational or what have you. So I think I just just had a, an urge to sort of broaden out a little bit. Um, and, and so I, I was very lucky that, that it's possible at, at um, where I was, where I was studying to change subjects fairly late on. So I was asked to, um, uh, funnily enough, given the, the subject of this book, I was asked to go and write an essay on Descartes. So I sort of, you know, went back to my, um, it was a gas fire heated room, not a stove heated room, <laughs> and started writing a an essay on Descartes, and I was allowed to change to study history and philosophy of science as a dedicated department, as many of you. Yes. Cambridge, uh, and it was just a wonderful experience. You know, I found myself in that, that final year of the degree learning about everything from sort of, um, you know, ancient uh, astronomy to um, Renaissance magic traditions and science in the Cold War or what have you. Um, and I just, just looked felt like I sort of found a home intellectually. Um, I suppose the the kind of um, the, the lovely combination for me was um, on the one hand I was lucky enough to go to, to Peter Lipton's um, lectures he gave on on causation and laws of nature and so on, um, and there was something just really wonderful about seeing those concepts that you know are, are, are of course used routinely all the time in the sciences like causation or laws of nature, but seeing them as it were sort of fall apart or start to look a lot more <laughs> complicated than they'd they'd seemed um uh, but at the same time to have this lovely sense that you could contribute I mean, it's partly because peter was just such a wonderful teacher but you felt as if these concepts were difficult but nevertheless that in this room together just by trying to think clearly by trying to use our imagination to come up with counter examples you know what if people threw two pebbles at the milk bottle at the same time how would we say one had caused it to break or what have you that you felt as if that you were being shown that certain things were um difficult were you know taken for granted in a way that perhaps they shouldn't but at the same time given these tools to make progress in thinking about them and taming which was uh, and of course you know in the sciences that it might take you an awfully long time and a lot of money to get to that point where you felt like you could make that kind of progress and so there was something very exciting about feeling as if you could you could start to do that in philosophy just with a few of you in a room having a, a conversation um uh, and I think the the other thing that was really wonderful about it was that a, alongside that kind of analytic philosophy of science, there was also this sense of the sort of wonderful sweep of the history of science that placed it in its material and social context. So, you know, thinking about whether or not the experimental method, you know, was something that was um, in its current form relatively recent. Did it have something to do with the particular social and political circumstances of the 17th century in England or what have you, th those were just very powerful and interesting ideas to um, uh, to engage with. Um, and I think, you know, in a way, as I reflect on it now, it's really bringing those two strands of interest together that sort of motivates this, this book, really, trying to bring together, you know, on the one hand, all of the questions that have traditionally interested philosophers and and in our tradition epistemology in particular about reasoning and the relationship of mind to world and so on um with uh, hopefully a sense of just the the messy complexity of the material and social context in which reasoning and inquiry um happens um, mm -hmm. and i think 
you know, there's a there's a temptation. I mean, I include myself in this of um, to to listen to all those um, histories about that that complexity about the you know the institutions that need setting up, all the material culture of the sciences, and and so on. But to sort of think, yeah, but we're interested in what goes on in here, and I'm sort of you know tapping my <laughs> forehead as I say that you know that we're we're sort of that's all important but we're interested in reasoning or concepts or knowledge and all, all the sorts of things that philosophers often concern themselves with um and I suppose broadly speaking what I was interested in doing in the book was trying to think about a conception of mind um that can do justice to that material and social culture to say well this is what reasoning is this is what it this is what it looks like it's not as it were just something that happens in here as it were touching my my uh, forehead again, but it's something that um, happens in the world that changes over time and, and so on. Okay. Well, that's, you've touched on a number of, you know, issues that we will return to. I mean, you do have a background in, you know, thinking about scientific modeling as well as, as well as material culture, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but this is, you know, mind is metaphor. Um, so maybe just to start us off, give us a, you know, very brief, you know, we'll get into details, but a little, you know, brief synopsis of of what the view is. Mm. Um, yeah, I suppose the, the view um, starts from this thought that um, we often think about the mind as a, a an inner world. Um, that, um, you know, when you look in someone's eyes, as it were, you can imagine that that um, somewhere in there, there's a there's an inner world that houses their beliefs, their desires, their hopes, their fears, and so on. And that that's that's what the mind is. It's something that we can hopefully get some indication about in the case of of other people by observing their behaviour. But it's not something that's directly available to us, um, and it's something that that lies inside and that is the um, the the home of their 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 thoughts, their mental states, perhaps their um, their their feelings as well, um, and I suppose what I wanted to do is to say that um, that that view of the the inner world, particularly as thoughts, as kind of inner representations of the world, um, I want to say that that's a, um, a, a useful fiction. In other words, um, people don't really have those inner worlds, but it's very useful. In fact, it's indispensable for us, at least in our culture, to think about them as if. They had those inner worlds that housed um, their beliefs and desires and so on. Um, and the, the reason for using the term metaphor is to say, I think that the conception, the concept of mind that we have is a metaphorical projection of the outer world of material culture, of spoken and written language and pictures and so on. I think it's a metaphorical projection of that outer world of material culture inside to create um, an imagined inner world of inner sentences, inner pictures and so on that capture people's um, their thoughts, their beliefs, their intentions and desire. And as I say, I think we can't um, do without that fiction, but I do think it is a fiction. Okay. So good, good. Um, so one of the, one of the things that, you know, when I first, you know, was when I was first reading through was um, how restricted is this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, um, you know, as I went through is the, the, the idea of mental fictionalism seems to be, uh, 
restricted, right? I mean, it's, you know, I think at one point you sort of set aside emotions and, and you know, more complicated sorts of states. Um, uh, but that the, the main target here is what's often called folk psychology, or at least the traditional sense of folk psychology, because people have greatly expanded what folk psychology involves. But it's it's the idea, it's, you know, folk psychology is the ascription of propositional attitudes, you know, um, you know, sentences, uh, and that these sentences describe the content of people's mental states. And in a, you know, classical, you know, computational model, there's a language of thought, and there are these sentences, and they're captured in our public language. Uh, but the the main thrust is that thoughts are these you know sort of sentences and not in in our heads um, and that's specifically I think what you're targeting here that idea is is that is that correct yes I think that's 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 correct yeah I, I suppose that um view that sometimes known as computationalism have you is a um a, one of the most recent um, manifestations of a view, um, a, a broader view of representationalism, as it's often called, the, you know, the thought that, as you say, propositional attitudes in particular or thoughts or inner representations, that um, is often traced back to the early modern period. But, but absolutely, as you say, in its um, most recent form, especially since, of course, the, the founding of cognitive sciences in the sixties. Um, it, it takes it takes a, the particular form that you mentioned that draws on computationalism, and and of course that view has all sorts of different varieties as well. So, so let me let me so uh, again, I mean, the idea is that we have thoughts, but they're just not propositional attitudes. Is that would that be right? Um, I'm not sure. I'd I'd put it like um quite like that but let, let me try to um let me try to so i think that um if the question is simply do we have thoughts or do, do we do we let's put it put it quite straightforwardly or dogmatically do we have minds i think what i'd say is well if by mind you mean an inner world of um uh, states with contents or states that represent um, the world outside and and are, are caused by the world when in perception, for instance, and causes to behave in certain ways. Then I think no, we we don't have have minds in that sense. So we don't have um, inner um, sentences of the language of thought or inner pictures and on a, on a, a earlier Lockean view or what, or what have you. Um, nevertheless, there's a sense in which we we do have minds, which is to say we do have. Um, uh, genuine patterns in our behavior that are picked out by the metaphors. So, so roughly speaking, I think when we talk about people's beliefs and desires, we're saying very roughly they behave as if they were guided by an inner representation with this content. Um, the representation doesn't exist, but what we say is true or false depending on the way that person behaves, um, and um, those patterns in their behavior do do exist. So, so in a sense, asking do people have minds um, is to use a, a, a parallel that I, you know, mentioned in the book a few times. So it's a little bit like asking, are there angry clouds? <laughs> the the answer is well, yes and no. There aren't there aren't clouds that really are angry or sad or what have you. Um, uh, but 
and there are clouds that are perfectly appropriately picked out by that metaphor certainly and i think the same is true about people and minds there are there are patterns of our behavior that are um perfectly correctly picked out by using the metaphors that we use even if the inner states are fictions um okay so i'm tra- i'm trying to get a fix on what what is and is there i mean clearly we're conscious of uh something <laughs> you know um and i can sit and you know cogitate without behaving in any way um and the specificity of what's going on in my head will not be captured by my behavior or any pattern of behavior that i might uh express uh unless it's of course writing a sentence um so, I mean, you're not an eliminativist. Does that you're, you're you're a fictionalist? I mean, so I'm trying to tease out what's the difference between an eliminativist and then the view that you are defending. And I mean, you mentioned you know this sort of we're picking out genuine patterns in our behavior. There is a background here in terms of you know uh, Ryle's you know screed against the you know the Cartesian theater, or the, or the uh, the ghost in the machine, and then of course Dennett's, you know, um, his pat- real patterns thing. So, um, how you know how are you different from an eliminativist, and how are you different from Ryle and Dennett? Okay, yeah, and and I think we should perhaps have the the feeling that I should also come back to um, conscious experience that you asked about because you, yeah. you asked about. The restriction, as it were, am I, am I just talking about thoughts as propositional attitudes? What about other aspects of mind as well? And I have the feeling that that's sort of behind some of the the, the points where you're pushing me as as well. Um, so, um, but yeah, perhaps if I stick to thoughts prop- as you know propositional attitudes and and and, uh, and and try to fill out the view a little bit, as you say, by comparing it to these other other well known positions, um, that, that would help. I think. Um, I mean, the one way that I would put it is to say um, that um, that w- what, in the first instance, what fictionalism is opposed to is the idea that our ordinary talk about the mind, as you said, it's often called folk psychology, um, particularly focusing on, on attributing beliefs and desires. Um, fictionalism, I think, is opposed to the idea that that's giving a theory of our inner machinery in some way. Now, and that's a very common view about about folk psychology, right? That it's an attempt to describe what's going on in in our heads. Um, and and roughly speaking, the um, at least the classical form of computationalism that you that you mentioned earlier um, accepts that idea and is fairly optimistic about folk psychology. Right? That says, well, by and large, with some rounding error and so on, that theory of our inner worlds will uh, it is true. It will turn out to be vindicated by future cognitive science. We'll find that we we do have beliefs and desires as as states um, in a representational states that cause us to behave in certain ways. Um, as I see it, that the eliminativist, um, with regard here to, to um, propositional attitudes, has the same starting point. Says, yeah, the way we ought to understand the folk is that they're kind of um, proto-scientific theorists about the inner world. Um, they're, they're just much more pessimistic. Right? That they think that that vision of the world that the folk 
um, have, the, the inner world that the folk have will turn out to be wrong. Right? So that will it will turn out that our future um, cognitive science um, uh, shows that we don't have beliefs and desires, for instance, and other other kinds of folk states. So so as I see it, that representationalism and eliminativism have this common starting point, which is to say folk psychology is a theory of the inner world. And that's and that's what I want to to reject. I want to say that the folk aren't in the business of theorizing about our inner machinery, our inner states and so on. Um, now now as you say, then of course there are um uh, there are other views that that would agree with me there that would say yeah you're, you're quite right that the folk um, aren't offering a, a theory of inner machinery um, and behaviorism and instrumentalism are two two well-known versions of that approach and and some of these approaches are are often thought to to um, not work for various reasons so you know behaviorism is often thought to to run into a lot of a lot of problems for example um now, I think, um, so if I focus on Ryle and Dennett, um, I, I think they're both, um, you know, they're both wonderful thinkers. They're both thinkers who uh, can be hard to to classify according to the sort of easy labels, right? So, you know, Ryle is often re referred to as a, a behaviorist, but um, uh, certainly a lot of the central claims of behaviorism, like that we can reduce talk about the mind, talk about behavior, just don't appear in, in the concept of mind, for example. Um, so, but, but certainly, I mean, as I read him, the, the main difference between my own approach and Ryle's would be roughly this, that Ryle's view seems to be that um, Cartesianism, by which I mean this ghost in the machine idea, the idea of the mind as an inner world, whether material or, or non-material, um, um, is a kind of philosophical mistake. It's something that um, principally Descartes, but other philosophers have imposed upon the folk, upon our ordinary language. And it, it's in Ra's terms, it's a category mistake. Um, it's a kind of misreading of ordinary language. Um, and it's not part and parcel of our ordinary um, folk psychology. The, the main difference that I want to, to the main um, way in which I want to differ from that view is I want to say, no, that Cartesianism, this idea of mind as inner world, is part and parcel of ordinary language. Um, that where Cartesianism goes wrong, or where representationalism, for instance, goes wrong, is it, it takes that metaphor too seriously. So it, it, that, that the, the view of the mind as an inner world, I think, is, is present in ordinary language. But the, the key... Um, uh, thing to do is not, on the one hand, take it too seriously and think we do have that inner world, and that's broadly speaking the mistake that Cartesianism makes. On the other hand, I think the the other mistake is to to overlook the fact that 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 conception of mind as inner world is part and parcel of our concept of mind, right? Um, and I think that's the mistake that um, uh, behaviorism in its its usual form, for instance, makes it tries to do away with that notion of inner world while still doing justice to um, our concept of mind. And I don't think you can do that. So, so for example, you know, in Ryle, he has this. Um, I love I love the concept of mind. It's one of my favorite books in philosophy. And uh, and of course, he gives us all of these extremely rich, um, broadly speaking, dispositional analyses of. Um, of mental states and so to, you know to say that someone has a particular belief is to say some extraordinarily complex thing about different behaviors they might engage in 
Um, and I suppose that um, one way to put the, 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 the key claim of fictionalism is um, it's true that our talk about the mind is, um, as it were, dependent on those patterns of behavior. Really, all it is is a way of picking out those patterns of behavior. Um, but I think we can only pick them out through this metaphor of mind as inner world. So I think one of the things metaphors do for us is they enrich our language. They allow us to say things that we couldn't say before we created a certain metaphor. Um, and so, for instance, if we think about, um, you know, an example I use in the book, ima imagine, you know, you say about someone that they believe that the number 73 bus goes to Oxford Street, London. Um, and, you know, a dispositional analysis will say, well, we're saying that to pick out this complex disposition in their behavior. But if you think about all the different sorts of behavior that could be associated with having that belief from, you know, pointing to a particular spot in the timetable, running after a big red object going down the road, you know, hopping off um, the, that big red object at a certain point and so on. It's very hard to see what ties, like, why would I language pick out all of those different forms of behavior in some way? Um, and the, the fictionalist thought is, well, we do it because they're all forms of behavior that um, they're all ways in which we that we behave as if we had an inner sentence, right, that had that um, that claim about the number 73 bus. Those are all ways in which someone who walked around with a little notebook with number 73 bus goes to Oxford Street would be expected to behave. And that it's it's that's why we pick out that complex pattern. It's because we're operating with this particular sort of sort of metaphor. Um Perhaps to move on to Denix, I realise I'm. Um, uh, this has been a long, long answer. Um, so before we before we get to the Dennett, um, I did want to sort of follow up on on what you're saying about Ryle. So, um, so yeah. So the talk talk of mine is you know picking out in fact these complex patterns of behaviour, not not inner states. Um, um, but then you, you, I think you said something that this is this is the only way we can, in fact, refer to these patterns of behavior. So I just is that is that correct? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, what? Why is that? Um, that's a good a good question. Um, so say, I mean, I think it. So so I mean, my grounds for saying it are that um, I suppose roughly speaking that that. Um, several, but, but folk psychology seems to be indispensable. It's, it's extremely hard to imagine what a limitedism that told us to do away with it would account to, uh, I, I amount to rather, um, and that behaviorism was an attempt to translate, talk about the mind to, as it were, reduce it to talk about behavior, uh, seems to have failed. Um, and so as I say, what one way to try to, to understand that is to say that that the the metaphors that I would see in the, of the mind are and what and sometimes called representationally essential. So in other words, they can't be given literal characters. So they they add some um, expressive um, ability to our language. I suppose. Um, well, let's let's get to dinner. I mean, I don't want to. Um, there, there's all kinds of things that I could ask, but. Um, uh, yeah, so you had mentioned before real patterns, and that that immediately will will bring up thoughts of Dennett. Um, so yeah, how does your view uh, compare to or relate to Dennett's Dennett's view? Quasi quasi realism, I think, is his preferred term. I don't know if that's your term, but uh, yeah. 
Um, yeah. Yes, I, it's funny. I, I um, in fact, Dave was kind enough to to, to write a, a paper for a volume I recently edited on, on mental fictionism, and, and it and um, I think his title is "Am I a Fictionist?" And, and the first line sort of says, "Well, yes and no." I, I guess yeah. I did, I did what I, kind of what I want to say as well. It's a, a label he's he's um, resisted various times. I think so. So I think I'd say that. Um, in my view, that the kind of machinery that I, I want to bring to in terms of pretense and so on to try to understand fish and that's I want to cash cash it out, I think helps to make sense of some of the aspects of Dennett's view that that people have found problematic. So one aspect, for instance, is um, that he said, "Well, beliefs and desires are are real, um, and yet uh, a Martian who." Um, didn't have access to the intentional stance, but had a complete physics and so on, would nevertheless miss certain patterns in um, in the world behavior. Um, and, and again, I'd want to say, well, think again about the the parallel with some a claim like, um, you know, the clouds over Exeter are angry today, which they're they're not quite. Lit. Um, uh, now, you know, again, it seems like well that that claim, even though it involves metaphor, could pick out. Uh, a genuine pattern on the weather over Exeter on a particular day. Um, it can be true or false in virtue of um, the way the world is. Um, and it might be something that was missed by some uh, otherwise expert uh, Martian um, meteorologists who didn't have access to our particular set of metaphors. So so I suppose um, one thing I would want to say is that certain aspects of Dennett's view that people have thought difficult seem to start to make sense of to you. I mean, another another worry that people have had, for instance, is that um, and sometimes it talks about beliefs and desires as um, in a, an informational state, sometimes just patterns of behavior that they have this kind of dual character. And again, that's exactly what we'd expect if uh, talk about the mind of metaphorical, because it's a projection from one domain, which is about um, representations and patterns and um, uh, and information in, in our external representations, it's a projection of that um, to make sense of behavior. Having said all oh, oh, sorry, sorry. No, that's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, so the angry cloud thing, you know, is a bit confusing to me. I, I do understand it as a, as a metaphor, but um, the claim that the clouds are angry or the cloud is angry, um, uh, is a is about the cloud, right? It's not like the cloud is not really going through something that makes us draw a metaphor to to, to human anger. Um, but you're you're saying that we're we're talking about an inner world, um, and the propositional attitudes, the content descriptions we give, are are metaphorical. But you're getting rid of the world, and that's uh, the inner world, and and replacing with something else, and that's not what's going on with the angry cloud. Yes, I think um, so. That the the thought is that if if in the metaphor of the um, it may, maybe that um, comparative, as you say, that parallels with this this particular example don't don't bear pushing too far. But the the thought is that what what we're doing is we're as it were. We're making sense of people's behavior when they don't say things out loud, write things down, and so on. We're making sense of their behavior then through this metaphor by by looking at this parallel, as it were, with 
the things that do people do when they do write things down. So, for instance, we, we talk about memory as if it were a little inner notebook that we have. Uh, what we're doing, well, we're saying, well, you can um, you can make sense of that person by talking about them as if they had a notebook to hand where they could write down useful information and then look it up later on, use it to guard their their actions. Um, and so, like the cloud, the behaviour and the pattern that they're, they're in, the behaviour they're engaging in, I think, is perfectly real. Um, but the little inner notebook isn't. Uh, the, the, the inner the inner representation isn't that, that would be one way to to put it J- just to say with the just to go back to Dennett just to to um, make clear perhaps something just to be um, clear about the, the what I think is quite a fundamental difference that perhaps we'll come on to later um, I, I think a key as I read him a key difference between the view I want to to try to put forward in Dennett's is that um, I, I do think that that language. Um, introduces something quite different. In other words, I, 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 do, I think that um, as I read Dennett, I think the intentional stance seems to be, as it were, a story um, about um, uh, about represent about intentionality as a whole. Whereas um, what I want to say is, well, in fact, it's uh, what we're doing is projecting public intentionality, especially language on to the mind so that the, the view does allow that there's something as it were um uh, fundamentally different that comes into being with social creatures like us who use language that's then metaphorically projected um uh, inside and i think that's um, an, an important difference with that okay okay um right but you'd i i guess like dennett maybe i mean for him the intentional stance, um, you know, you can use it for anything. Um, it's just a matter of prediction um, and explanation. But um, yes, I think and I think it, language it adds yeah. and language itself adds something to that. Um, uh, so, so his view is very flattening in that sense, right? Anything you can take the intentional stance towards anything, just as you can take, of course, the the physical stance or the design stance. Um, uh, your view also seems a bit flattening in the sense that maybe any any creature, um, you know, I'm thinking of of non-human animals. Um, you know, we we ascribe you know contents to them as well. But we don't think, you know, we, well, we, I mean, I don't know who's we here, but many, many people would agree, I think, that um, the sentences that we use to ascribe the contents to their thoughts are not really precise. I mean, we have a particular, you know, we know what the dog wants to go outside, you know, that sort of thing, or he wants to eat or, or something. Uh, but um, but we don't, we'd be reluctant to say, yes, I've actually captured the exact content of my dog's thoughts or my cat's thoughts or whatever. Um and so in that sense, when I talk about what's going on in a person, a human's head, it's kind of the same, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no difference there. Um, as long as you've got su- sufficiently complex patterns of behavior, correct? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that 
and, and as you say, the, the view is is quite flattening in that respect. I mean, one way to put that would be to say, um, it it thinks that I take the boundaries of the mental to be somewhat blurred, um, and that that follows, I think, from the fact that I'm claiming that that talk is metaphorical, so that the the aptness of metaphors is a matter of degree, um, and. Um, and so, so for instance, in the case of um, uh, a dog, for instance, in creature without language, um, if we think about the memory as a notebook example, if I say, well, um, the you know the dog remembers where it lives, uh, well, um, what am I saying? I'm saying uh, that it's it makes sense to treat the the, the dog as if it had an inner notebook with uh, its address written down. Well. That metaphor is much less apt than it would be in the case of um, you know, a person used language because um, someone who's using a notebook with an address written down, if you ask them where they live, could tell you the address, could read it out. Um, that's not true of the, the dog's behavior. Nevertheless, there are some ways, some patterns in the dog's behavior, like where the dog will run back to if it's you know coming back from a walk or, or what have you, um, uh, that are, um, are well captured. Metaphor. So I'd say, well, these these metaphors, although they're based on human practices of using language, of using representations like like um, inscriptions in notebooks or what have you, still they can be apt to a certain degree in talking about um, other 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 elements. For instance, that I don't think is true. Mm. I mean, I could you know, it's because there's a whole debate, you know, in the you know animal cognition or comparative cognition of you know uh do apes read minds right for example is that they mind the whole the the deflationary view that no there's just behavior reading and so you're saying no 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 it's it's all behavior reading there is no mind reading yes i, I suppose so. i mean um i, I mean I, I should say i'm i'm very aware that i'm not, not at all an expert animal uh Cognition, so so I'm, I'm I'm aware that there are in sort of deep waters here that um, um uh, that, that I you know I, I, I need to be careful, but I um I suppose all the the point that I would, would just be concerned to make is to say that um that this is a view that I think allows for the possibility of minds without language um, applied to, to animals or, or pre linguistic infants and so on, and the reason I want to emphasise that is just going back to what I said earlier that. That I do think language is very important. I do think that our concept of mind, as I've said, is a, a kind of projection of our, our languages um, uh, and our representations inwards. And, it, and it's quite natural to think that a view like that, which privileges language, is going to uh, or might tend to rule out, say, animal cognition. And so, so I just want to kind of emphasize that I don't think that that conclusion follows at all. In fact, as you've said, I think it is a, a fairly flat view that sees attribution as happening broadly similar ways in 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 um all, all of those cases. Um uh, nevertheless, of course, that you know um, there are there are important differences and, and that leaves open a huge range of really important um both uh empirical and conceptual questions about exactly what Mental states we want to attribute to different sorts of animals based on their abilities and so on, and I, and I you know, certainly don't have a, 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 a good handle on on that at the moment. But I, I certainly do think the view doesn't rule it out, and, and hopefully it makes the attributes 
accessible, you know, because because they're based on behavior. Right. Um, I mean, there's lots of interesting ways to to pursue that, but let me let me get to the question of metaphor. Um, so, you know, my you know just my familiarity, such as it is with metaphor from you know cognitive psychology, is you know there's some sort of a mapping from one you know base domain to a target domain, um, and there's supposed to be some sort of you know at least on you know, Dedra Gentner's view, for example, there's there's similarity in the relationships between, you know, components in the base and components in the target. And, you know, similar, the, um, you know, you can use a very flowery sort of metaphor like, you know, um, you know, time is a river or, you know, love is a journey. But also, you know, in modern science, you know, you'll get, um, you know, certain models of like the atom as like a solar system. And so there's parts of the, you know, we're familiar with the base domain and we describe the the target domain in ways that are, you know, can be mapped to the to the elements and relationships of the of the base domain. That's one understanding of metaphor, um, which is not all of fiction, obviously. So could you say what your view of, you know, when you say mind is metaphor and the view is called mental fictionalism, um, it's, uh, what precisely do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so the... And the idea, so as you say, that that it seems to be, um, well, you accept that it's characteristic and metaphor, that there's a, a a movement of terms from one domain that um, typically we, we think we understand better or is more accessible to us for some reason um, to another domain that perhaps we lack ways of talking about or is less accessible or have you been. And, and exactly as you say, that those uh, moves are familiar in the sciences as well as in all sorts of parts of, of everyday life. Um, in the case of the mind, I want to say that the two domains um, are, as it were, the, the less well understood domain, the, the domain that we're interested in talking about is um, people and the way that they behave in the first instance without using external tools. So um, without declaring what they're going to do and then doing it, for instance, or without writing down some information then looking it up and so on, just people sort of walking around, um, you know, without telling us very much about what they're, what they're up to. Um, so that's, that's the, where the, the domain we're interested in trying to make sense. And the thought is that what we do when we, invent this concept of mind is we try to make sense of that um, that kind of behavior in people by looking to this other enormously rich domain which is um, also the movement of people and their behavior but this time uh, involving tools so writing things down in, um, in a piece of paper in a notebook and then looking it up later on um, or um, saying out loud I want a cup of coffee and then going to make a cup of coffee that's so the thought, well, the the, the realization that um, that the web that motivates the invention of the concept of mind is that um, realization that we can treat people 
um, in the first instance when they um, don't have access to it, when we're not saying what they want to do out loud, when we're not writing things down and so on, we can nevertheless make sense of them by treating them as if they were writing things down and looking it up, were saying things out loud. So they, they have a desire for a cup of coffee, even when they just walk up to the cat and switch it on without saying, I want a cup of coffee, for instance. Acting as if they have um, that um, uh, inner representation helps us to explain why they're reaching in the cupboard and picking out the coffee jar and so on um, in something like the way it would if um, they were to have told us out loud or what's going on. So, that, so this, that's the, the, as you say, the, the characteristic feature of metaphor is those two domains. And I want to say both of those domains are taken from human behavior and culture. The reason I... I think this this you know, this term fiction is is quite unfortunate in in a way. It's something that um, uh, is something of a term of art in, in various areas. I've, I've written about fiction in the context of scientific modelling, for instance. And of course, it's always somewhat unfortunate to talk about a relationship between science and fiction. It can lead people to think you're uh, a skeptic or a flat earther or what have you. Uh, right. <laughs> in this context. Um, uh, meant to mean that we um, that when we when we look as if we're making assertions about an inner world, um, we don't mean those assertions literally. Just as we wouldn't if we said the clouds are angry um, uh, and um, or you know um, uh, that a friend was standing at a crossroads in their life or what have you. Um, that we're engaged in a kind of a, a minimal form of pretense that's akin to what happens in fiction and children's games and so on. But nevertheless, we're doing it for a, a serious purpose. Where, you know, if we say someone's standing at a crossroad, we're trying to make a, a genuine assertion about where they find themselves um, in their lives, faced with a difficult decision, and when we um, use this metaphor or this this fiction of an inner world, we're really what we're interested in when we're not doing positive psychology, but in everyday life, we're interested in behaviour, what they'll do, say, and so on. Okay. And so that kind of brings up the question of um, intentionality, right? I mean, because there's a whole, I mean, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, I mean, the whole explanations in cognitive science, you know, how to naturalize representation. And, you know, there's all sorts of um, uh, research programs, I, I guess, is the best way to put it that go on, which, um, which if you know if this is correct, would just be like completely off base. Um, so I, I'm not even I'm not going to go there so much because it's a, it's a whole nother discussion. Um, but I do want to get to the issue of intentionality, um, and you do say in the book that. Um, you know, the intentionality of mental states, uh, such as it is, I suppose, uh, which it, it certainly would, the whole meaning of intentionality would be completely different, but um, at least for mental representations, but that public, you know, language, um, that's perfectly fine intentionality in the usual sense. So, could could you explain how your view relates to uh, the intentionality, the the meaning, the semantic content of of language, and then how that um, how you explain that 
or, or the so-called intentionality, I suppose, of mental states as, in some sense, parasitic upon or derived from the so-called original intentionality in language, public language. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll do my best. So, I I think um, I mean, as you say, that the, the view here is um, uh, arguably in a, in a minority. I mean, that I take it, the the typical approach that you will find to thinking about intentionality proceeds in, in exactly the opposite direction. So, the the typical approach would be to think, well, um, what, you know, why is it that um, uh, sentences spoken out loud and, you know, disturbances in the air or marks on paper, why do they have content? Um, well, they they have content because someone, um, there was a speaker or a writer um, and they had certain thoughts. And so the, the you know, on the um, uh, usual view, take it that the, um, the intentionality of public representation like language is dependent on the thoughts of those who are using it. And in the representationalist view, um, the way that content ultimately bottoms out is in the um, inner representation of the, the writer or speaker or whatever. And as you say, in, in a way, I want to, to turn the direction uh, of explanation the other way around. So um, now, I should say that I should just admit at the outset that I don't think that fictionalism in itself gives is a, is a theory of meaning so i don't think it um uh it, it gives a theory of public intentionality it's not a theory of, of language but it's still reliant on that the idea that we could as it were acquire language um without explaining its content in terms of prior inner state so so i i, I it, it's at least important for the fictionist to sketch one version of how that that might go um so, so one one view that I um, it's not not at all Newton uh, original to me at all is and um, would say well um, look start from the fact that we're social creatures who tend to act alike much of the time and tend to um, discipline in various ways from you know subtle to more uh, to less subtle um, those people who uh, are um, out of line. So we have, in other words, um, communities in which norms arise, certain patterns of behaving that you're supposed to engage in. Um, and one of the things that we do is use tools. With all. So, you know, if you think about something like a screwdriver, um, it's um, used in certain norm-governed activities, and there's, that means that there's something that it's for. It has a certain function. Um, it's for, um, you know, driving in screws rather than, um, uh, you know, uh, making a hole of the wood or, or, or taking the lid off a paint pass or what have you. Um, and, and the broad idea that, that's common to many thinkers who have this, this kind of view would be that um, uh, language is a tool in that way, that, that we start to utter sounds and make marks of, that have a particular role that are for something, for labeling, for instance. Uh, and, and that really is, uh, broadly speaking, what how meaning arises. Um, now, as I say, that that's it's a, a view that you know is found. Very different thinkers. There's certainly an awful lot that needs to be done to to uh, has been done to sketch that out. I think where um, fictionism comes in is to say, well, look, once you have a community that has language that has external um, uh, representations, um, how would it get the concept of mind 
and and that I think comes to work afterwards when um, that external world of sentences of, of um, uh, the noises and marks with certain um, social roles gets projected metaphorically inside. So, so I think where the fictionless story comes in, it's how in a community that that already is developed language as a norm governed social group, then come up with the concept of mind. Um, and but but be quite right to say that that's um, although there are lots of people who develop something about that view of language, it's and um, perhaps still a minority. Okay. Um, I mean, I do want to pursue that, but uh, we, but we're we're running low on time. So I do want to get back to the one of the things you said at the very beginning on uh, material culture. And we haven't we haven't really talked about material culture, although just now you're talking about you know language as a tool. Um, uh, can you you know sort of to go back to that that um that aspect of of you know how you even you know came to mental fictionalism um can you can you um say a bit about um the relationship of this to your your background or original views on material culture um yes it was I, I, perhaps quite like a, a lot of these um roots is a little bit torturous but I'll but I'll try to <laughs> uh, I'll try to I think um as I say, the original interest for me was in thinking, look, if, if as philosophers we want to understand um, scientific knowledge, reasoning, what it can tell us about the world and so on, then we, then we need to take into account what will be some wonderful, wonderfully rich historical and sociological stories it told us about the dependence of scientific reasoning on, on we diagram systems, informing models, reach simulations of what have you, and the uh, Particular social institutions are created that are created like the you know, overall society or having to to govern their end use. Um, and uh, originally, something that we haven't talked about very much, but, but many of you readers will be familiar with, of course, is that um, the extended mind thesis and, and similar ideas uh, that that are, are ways of trying to say that what's happening externally when someone say works through a formula on a on a piece of paper and um, should should count as reasoning and so a few years ago um i, I where I was trying to do was use some of those views to kick extended mind thesis to talk about scientific reasoning in that way so you know to try to say that for example the use of instruments could count as a kind of perception and that's important for the way we think about empiricism for instance or um, that understanding in science is very often an extended state that involves interacting with um, formulae and diagrams and so on. Um, but but the extended mind thesis um, still accepts what we've been calling representationalism. So it, it still accepts the idea that perhaps even in all cases that we find in the real world, um, uh, outside of philosophical thought experiments, um, mental states are, are in the head. It, it, if it claims that under certain, perhaps slightly unusual circumstances, um, uh, and they, they could extend that. Um, and so I suppose the way I began thinking about metafictionism was of trying to give a, a, a different view that could reject that idea of the, the mind as in a world, but nevertheless explain why it is that we're tempted by it. Um, and the, the result is, as it were, almost the reverse of the extended mind thesis. So the extended mind thesis is a thesis that says, well, sometimes under special circumstances, 
the mind can spread out to material culture. I wanted to say that, well, in fact, the most foundational move, it seems to me, is exactly the opposite way around. It's that we develop material culture and then metaphorically project that inwards to to create the, the concept of mind. Well, I think what, what that means if we think about something like the history of material culture and sciences is that um, is is a different way of thinking about um, epistemology. That that if you know, if we think about um, uh, Locke or Hume or those empiricists who wanted to, to to talk about the limits of the, the human mind, the way that they do that is by thinking about the mind as an inner world um, of ideas and asking, well, what are its operations? Um, uh, what is its relationship to the world outside? Um, and we get the central problem of lots of uh, foundational problem of lots of Western philosophy uh, to understand that relationship. And I think what I'm trying to say is that what is it, that the mind itself has a history, and that history is the history of the creation of different tools for thinking and the social environments in which they occur. And that by creating those tools, we, we don't have a as it were, a fixed inner world that somebody like, like Hume is trying to describe. Um, we have this sort of constantly developing world that allows us to, to think new thoughts. Okay. Um, well, I think we are, we are out of time now, uh, unfortunately, because there's a lot of different avenues to pursue there. So, uh, so tell us, you know, just to close, uh, what what are you working on now? Are you are you following this up, or have you turned to something else? Um, I, I'm I'm following it up or trying to. Um, I think by addressing follows from what I was just saying, um, by addressing the historical uh, aspects of the question. So, um, you know, if at the moment what I've been trying to show is that it is part and parcel of our concept of mind as a focus psychology that we have today that um, that we think of the mind as an inner world but that that's a metaphor and I'm interested now in asking well uh, when did we get that conception a lot of people that think in modern period are understandably is critical method but where did we get that conception that set of metaphors um, and and what what purpose do they can they serve excellent well um Thank you very much for a very interesting conversation. Um, I appreciate you taking, yeah, I appreciate the, taking the time to talk with us at New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. And good luck with your current projects as well. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.